Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. What's going on on this sunny Sunday afternoon? <laughs> we just had another snowstorm and I'm loving March. I love March. Uh, I feel like a couple weeks ago I was talking about how much I hated February, but I forgot that I actually love March because you can feel spring coming and it's <laughs> snowy and you know it's about to end and you, uh, I mean, have so much snow that like when you walk in paths that have never been cleared like snows up to your waist it's i'm great how are you (laughs) i'm also great i love the beginning of spring and in los angeles at the beginning of spring there are jacaranda trees all around the city and jacaranda trees have beautiful purple blossoms that smell so nice and so they're out everywhere and despite the fact that i'm like allergic to the west coast i'm really enjoying it (laughs) (laughs) the hay fever sucks but i am very much enjoying it so it's good life is good well that's nice because things are like kind of shitty in the world still I know. So I read this article today that had me very concerned. You know how we spoke about a couple weeks ago how a whole bunch of corporations are probably going to benefit immensely from the war and warmongering that's been going on? Yes. Yeah. So Clearview AI, Clearview Artificial Intelligence, which... Um, folks, listeners, you've probably uh, heard of them, maybe, hopefully you have, as a company that uses facial recognition software and has provided their services extensively to policing in the United States and in Canada. And what this program does is kind of go through social media and other source documents to try to find people's faces and identify them and then provide that information to the police. It's the whole we live in a surveillance state sort of thing that this corporation makes use of and makes a ton of money off of uh, criminalizing people. And uh, it has been particularly an issue for black communities because it doesn't identify black people very well, but it has resulted in black people being arrested and incarcerated as a result of this shitty, shitty program that police forces are relying on. So you know that? You know that company? Yeah, yeah, I I do, actually. And they're really bad. I mean, that all just sounds so bad. (laughs) Yeah, they're really, really fucking bad. So today there was a report in Routers that they have admitted that they are now being used by the Ukrainian Defense Forces. They say they're being used, yeah, very bizarre. They say that it's being used specifically to identify the dead because they have the ability to identify the dead faster Than fingerprinting, which, I mean, I don't even know how they determine something like that, but that's what they're doing. But, like, one, so Clearview is clearly, um, you know, making new contracts out of war, but also the, the fact that it is being used by the military, I am certain that it is likely to be used for more than just identifying the dead. There's a situation right now in Ukraine where 
uh, men of a certain age are not allowed to leave the country because they are being conscripted. And there is a situation where men of a certain age, some of them are trying to leave the country because they don't want to fucking fight in a war. And I wonder if this sort of technology is going to lend itself to forcing people to be a part of war. I wonder if this sort of a technology is going to lend itself to how people interact with soldiers on the other side. I wonder what this technology is going to be further developed into as a result of being used for military purposes. Mm -hmm. And it's all very bad, Nora. It's all very, very bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, uh, the last part of what you were just saying is where I immediately went, which is of course, how does this all play out once you know, God willing, this this war ends soon or Russia is stopped or stops itself or whatever. Um, the way in which tech, technology companies use war to accelerate their research and development and to learn certain uh, things about how people interact with their technology or to get away with things that would otherwise be unacceptable from a general population that is what I think uh, worries me the most. And so I hadn't seen this. I, I'm going to go and, and try and read some more up on this. But uh, wow, that sounds really terrible. Yep. What you got? <laughs> well, I have a couple of things that I want to mention before we start. But before that, um, I would like to say some thank yous. Let's do it. Thanks to everybody who's changed their donation, who's donated for the first time, whatever. Don't ever feel ashamed or embarrassed if you go down in your donations or you stop them. I mean, we we don't notice. <laughs> so number one, you don't have to let us know that you're feeling really bad about it. Uh, you shouldn't feel bad about it. We we appreciate any bit of support that people have, uh, people can give. And uh, so thank you so much to uh, you for listening, you for sharing it with your friends. And specifically this week, thanks to Camille Mary, Shruti, Jess, Bob, Jessica, Zaid, and Laura. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Okay, Nora, what you got? Okay, so first of all, I want people to be really aware of uh, the way the Canadian government is uh, treating refugees from Ukraine, because I think that this is actually such an important issue that has gotten a bit of attention, um, uh, but it's not really gotten enough attention. And partly that's because it's pretty clear that you know the line right now in journalism is to make sure that like no criticism at all is being is being made against the Canadian government and their support um, for, for, for the Ukrainian government, Ukrainian people, and in whatever ways that that support has been looking. But there is this really wild uh, way that the Canadian government has decided to accept uh, refugees from Ukraine, which is to not actually call them refugees, so to not force them through the refugee program. Do you know about this, Sandy? I saw you tweet about it. So why don't you tell me a little bit more? I know about it from you. Oh, <laughs> cool. Um, and <laughs> and so I, I haven't done a ton of research about this, um, but I, I'm, I've, I have sources telling me about how it's like hitting the ground running, uh, how they are being expected to hit the ground running in setting things up for people coming from Ukraine, um, that they are they are being brought in by giving them work visas, which means that they're able to bypass the refugee process, which is cumbersome and not very good and uh, slow. And it's really interesting because I don't know if there's been a discussion or a public debate about doing this specifically for Ukrainians 
and not for, you know, all of the other people who are fleeing war and horrific violence who are applying to be refugees. I'm hearing this, as I say, from people who are trying to make this program work because they are bureaucrats. Um, and I just think it is so interesting. Like, of course, as a lot of people are, have identified that this is primarily happening because Ukrainians are white, mostly are coded as being white, um, and that the federal government's refusing to give the same, to extend the same uh, privilege, I guess, if we can call it that, to uh, non-Ukrainians who are fleeing Ukraine. So anybody who doesn't have citizenship, Ukrainian citizenship, Whoa. cannot come what? to Canada in the same way. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just recreating the problem at the European borders in Canada. That's great. Cool. Yeah. And this this was that was announced by uh, the federal government that that's how they were going to be uh, dealing with this. And it didn't again, like there was an article or maybe a couple of articles, but not that much outrage, because I think that it's very difficult for people to untangle their like steadfast support for Ukrainian people, their their total opposition to what Russia is doing, but then also being critical of the federal government and the way that they are interacting with this or managing this. And so I know that Sri Paradkar at the Toronto Star has written something uh, that that people should read. The, the headline is the Russia-Ukraine war quickly exposing mindset that is so deadly for black and brown refugees. Uh, definitely take a read of that and pay attention to how this unfolds because the, the federal government not declaring people fleeing war in Ukraine as refugees is just so unbelievable if you've been paying attention to how other people have been accepted to Canada who are fleeing war and, 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 and violence. And I I don't think that the liberals are going to get any heat on this and certainly not the level of heat they deserve. It's really quite fascinating. So I'm, I just looked up uh, some information on this and it's one of the differences also is in the fact that they are, there is no limit to um, how uh, Canada is accepting folks who are fleeing from Ukraine, which, you know, I agree with. There shouldn't be any limits. But recall that there were limits for refugees who were fleeing Afghanistan. And recall that for people who are fleeing Haiti, it was like uh, detention immediately for anyone. Like, uh, like, does it get more obvious the 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 way that our government runs in a white supremacist way. I, I don't know that it does. This is really, really disgusting and should, should of course, um, generate major outrage. Um, you know, I, I know that a lot of us are focused on what's happening or what has happened in Europe. Um, but if Canada's recreating that same stuff here, we should, we should make sure to, to point the finger um, at Canada as well. Mm -hmm. And to also like ask, okay, so what is wrong with our refugee system that the federal government would be doing this? You know, it, it identifies all of the all of the gaps in the system, all the ways that people are left in limbo forever. You know, how many people came to Canada as refugees and then worked as personal care workers within uh, facilities in this country that were being battered by COVID. You know, thousands. We we know of thousands of people who 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 spent their pandemic caring for uh, Canadians uh, in you know who were living in facilities that were being battered by 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 the virus. 
it's it's so stunning and uh and white supremacy is such a is such a, a major thread in in how this entire war is discussed and uh and I really hope that people pay close close attention to that cuz it's only going to continue it's only going to get worse and it is so fascinating how like there was there was a debate when it came to Syria you know there was the the I've said this before on the show the the the, the federal liberals saw refugee claimants as like turning on a tap. Oh, we'll accept 15,000. Oh, we'll accept 25,000. You know, oh, you know, you can get five of your friends together. You can privately sponsor people from Syria or whatever. Afghanistan was like that, but like a third of the people being accepted or being talked about being accepted. Um, and then, you know, to not even mention other uh, conflict zones like, you know, Mali, like Canadians are engaged in Mali. What kind of resettlement is happening with people from Mali? Like, I haven't heard of fucking anything, right? <laughs> so for like, for example. Yemen. Yemen, exactly. Yeah, and there's there's so there's so many examples of this. So I, you know, pay attention. It's really horrific. And and when someone asked Christopher Freeland if um, their junket going to Europe last week uh, was worth it or was a junket, and she's like, eh, "How dare you ask me that question?" Like as if like she's just mad that a commoner got up in her face. Um, you know, be critical of that. <laughs> Yeah, be really critical of that because, I mean, if you haven't seen it yet, the, the government created a very bizarre propaganda video, I suppose, in response to um, to the question that uh, Travis Stanraj asked, um, you know, asking the government, why did you need to come to Europe to do what you're doing? And they, it, it's just this very bizarre propaganda video of, you know, Justin Trudeau smiling like he does uh, as he walks around Europe and shakes hands and meets with our troops in Poland and talks about how he's going to be providing weapons to Ukrainians. Like, it's and it makes it seem like it was a photo op, which, uh, you know, I think was a valid question to ask. Um, and it was very bizarre to see Christian Freeland's response. Yes. But, you know, he did meet with the queen like she's directly I- involved in, in all of this uh, as the cousin uh, to the Russian royal family. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? Is she Well, her alive? husband. Yeah, well, well, yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> She's still alive. <laughs> anyway, none of this is what we are planning on talking about tonight, but we thought we should um, let you all know what we're thinking about the current events. But one final last thing is we do want to mention that there is a pretty important political race going on in Canada right now. Um, it might be also the most annoying political race going on in Canada right now. Uh, and that is the conservative leadership race. And good news, Nora, I don't know if you heard, but um, you know how uh, a few years ago we learned that Patrick Brown was like a gross, gross man who, you know, like targets young girls to be gross? Yes, I, I do remember that. Apparently, uh, he's been exonerated. Oh. Or not? Oh. <laughs> or not. What a what a bunch of timing for him to have been exonerated or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh the there was a 
suit that Patrick Brown filed with uh, CTV News uh, to say you folks are lying about me when um, they published the story about um, a woman who had come forward with her experiences. There was a settlement. Uh, CTV uh, updated that story to say that there were some inaccuracies in the stories that has that have been corrected. Um, the major thing that was corrected was that the person who came forward, uh, the original article said she was 18, and now it says she's 19, but nothing else about the article has changed or any of the claims. But that settlement is being used by Patrick Brown and his people to say that, don't worry, he's a good guy and now fit to run for office. Yeah, and I want to give a shout out to the to the accuser uh, who I know, um, who I think listens to the pod, but maybe not. But if you're listening, hey, um, shout out to you because this is such bullshit, um, and uh, and it sucks. It sucks so much that this is being used to launder his image. It's so funny that this whole thing hinges on uh, that age question, eighteen or nineteen, um, as if it fucking matters. <laughs> you know, it doesn't. It literally. As it literally it doesn't matters. matter because, I mean, if you cross the border into Quebec, then all of a sudden that 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 invisible line between 18 and 19 actually goes down to the, an invisible line between 17 and 18. Um, it's about context. It's about the power dynamics at play. Um, and it's also about how, uh, the fact that there were a lot of stories that corroborated this. A lot of people from Barrie, Ontario, where Patrick Brown was an MP, saying, yes, no, this is this this totally fits with what I've heard and this kind of thing. And, you know, I come from a town not far from Barrie, but we're we all also had um, a, a conservative uh, politician, I won't say who, because I don't know if he's ever been publicly named um, or publicly uh, denounced, but someone who everyone knew very, very well if you worked for this individual, um, and not actually as a politician, but if you worked for his family's farm, uh, the, a certain kind of young woman would be um, would, would experience sexual violence um, if you looked a certain way, if you were a certain age. And so this kind of stuff, I mean, is so freaking common um, that um, I'm a little surprised that that Brown isn't just being like, fuck, and I'm not even going to talk about this again, but instead getting CTV to quote unquote exonerate him over this one change in the detail of an age. Um, yeah, fuck that. And it's a super bad omen for the rest of this race. And all I can say is I'm watching Jean Charest really closely, and it'll be interesting to see if this guy can pull off um, the kind of t- talented political animal move that he has uh pulled off in his past, uh, or if he's going to fall on his face, which he might, um, and if someone like Patrick Brown is going to rise from the ashes. Because let us not forget that Brown in the past year, past two years, has been a rare critical voice about COVID and has been calling for things like paid sick days and has been calling for things like warehouses to be shut down. Um, so it, it does look like he he might have the political chops to offer moderate conservatives uh, what they've been looking for. Well, we'll talk about this a lot more, I'm sure, in the coming months, because the election is in September for the conservative uh, leader. Uh, but my prediction so, is that uh, we're so long, gonna, so yeah, long, real long. My prediction is that we're going to get the twerp. The twerp is going to be the leader and the twerp is obviously Pierre. <sighs> but anyway. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I'm going to be I'm going to be a good Quebecer and say, I bet you Jean Charest will pull it off. But we do know that there was some sort of indication that there might be a pact between uh, Charest and Patrick Brown. Um, That that might be interesting Uh, because anyway, I I have reasons for why I don't think Polyev's going to make it. Um, 
mostly because he's a twerp. And I think that people can <laughs> smell twerpiness a mile away, even if they are conservatives. I don't know. Justin <laughs> but, Trudeau's pretty twerpy, and it doesn't seem like much people have caught on to that. <laughs> he's twerpy, but there's a kind of liberal woman that wants to bang him. And oh, um, no. I don't think the same thing can be said about Pierre Polyev. <sighs> I didn't need that. Okay, um, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> you you brought Trudeau into that discussion, so that was your fault, that joke. Moving on. Uh, we wanted to talk tonight <laughs> about something that came up in our spaces a couple weeks ago. So we were talking in the spaces, and we started to talk a little bit about something that Nora and I have considered bringing up a few times on the podcast, but have always thought maybe now is not the right time. Um, and who knows, maybe now's not the right time, but we're going to discuss it anyway. Uh, and that is mutual aid. And for those of you who didn't participate in the spaces and are not sure what I'm talking about, um, one of the things that came up was this discussion about how mutual aid and the rise of thinking of mutual aid and um, coordinating mutual aid, some of what is being called mutual aid looks very, very familiar to what we understand more broadly as charity. And I think that many of us on the left have um, a politic around charity and a politic around mutual aid and how those things are different and how those things have, we, sh we should have a different orientation to those things. Charity being a sort of situation that is kind of mired in uh, religiosity and also mired in a relationship between someone who has power, who has like become a missionary and is going on some sort of mission um, to give to someone who is less fortunate in a way that does not give them back their power, does not uh, give them their dignity, but maintains the power relationship and maintains the structure around the relationship and never challenges it. And so charity becoming becomes this kind of depoliticized act, whereas the idea of mutual aid is supposed to be we are doing things for each other. The community is protecting one another and we're doing what we must do to keep ourselves alive and afloat um, because the system is failing us and it is supposed to be a complement to political action. There seems to be a, a bit of a tension that has come up around mutual aid and action. So is mutual aid a form of action or is it taking away from other actions or can we do all of these things at the same time? And I don't think that a conversation about mutual aid is possible without kind of dipping back into the conversation that we had last week, which is that we are all imbued in neoliberal logic. And when we're imbued with neoliberal logic, um, we act out in opposition to neoliberalism, but also surrounded by it as well. Um, and so I think that... Um, you know, it's one thing if our movements were super strong and we had an abundance of volunteers and we were, you know, just had so many opportunities to do X, Y, and Z that we can send people here, send people there. We could be involved in this and that or whatever um, and not take away from core organizing. But but we're not in that situation right now. And so oftentimes there is a tension between mutual aid and other kinds of organizing because it's all the same people. <laughs> like there's just not enough individuals to go around 
And so for me, I mean, I'm interested in this conversation about charity uh, versus um, justice, I guess, or, or charity versus empowerment or, I don't know, self-organizing, however you want to phrase it. But I'm actually more interested in the in the framing of, of mutual aid as being um, these individualized actions that are just helping people survive uh, the circumstances that we're all also trying to resist. And when we do have limited resources because we just cannot get the people into the room, we're all struggling, we're all disconnected, we have no resources, whatever, I think that a lot of people find mutual aid to actually be very comforting because there's a tangibleness that doesn't exist with other kinds of organizing, right? You've made a meal, the meal is being given to someone, you can see exactly like the impact of that. The The reality though is that kind of organizing it's it's not left wing in and of itself. In fact, it doesn't matter what kind of, of person you are, you likely have some sort of connection to mutual aid, whether that is, um, I mean, like the most extreme version of that is that fascists in my city actually go out and help individuals who are white, uh, who are who are in poverty. And uh, they do this and they publicize it and they, and they use these images to demonstrate what great people they are. Um, and then, you know, in a not fascist example, like from, uh, from you know, girl guides all the way up to church, church groups uh, running uh, soup kitchens or whatever. Um, the, these are kinds of things that have always existed because the state has always failed uh, certain kinds of people or, or people with certain kinds of needs and then average people step in. Um, you know, the most obvious example of that today is just like GoFundMe, how GoFundMe is totally ubiquitous when someone has any trouble at all. Um, the first reaction for, for someone else around them is to make a GoFundMe and let's get the money to, to see if they can get through this issue. And and so I, I'm really concerned that if we have limited resources, that mutual aid can't be what takes up our resources because that work will happen. The work does happen. And maybe it maybe it can happen in a in a in a in in some kind of sub subgroup of what we're doing. But we have to cre- create movements that are confronting power that are not going to be looking at our mutual aid and saying, haha. Who cares um, that we're not giving the poorest people in Canada any money during this pandemic because people will step in. People will donate to food banks. So you know what? We're going to give $100 million to food banks rather than giving a penny to the poorest people in this country. And that's the kind of logic that I think that we need to really uh, antagonize, criticize, fight through as we're as we're coming up with, okay, so what is the plan for our collective or our group or our community organization to help other people? Yeah, and I think that um, the pandemic has done something to uh, our prioritization of these different strategies for support for one another. Because I think that, you know, the, the building power, the building collectives that become powerful, the, the bringing people together to realize strength in numbers you know, that is a strategy of supporting one another as well. It's one that challenges power and is is explicitly left wing, as is the mutual aid. When the pandemic happened and the government so clearly, so early uh, was like, fuck you guys, (laughs) failing miserably to support people, I think the urgency of making sure that our 
relations, our neighbors, our friends, our family survived meant that people prioritized urgently, very quickly, mutual aid. And that makes sense. The problem becomes, I mean, how many organizations did the advocacy work of challenging the government's failure to support people? And how many people brought people together to build a sort of power that wouldn't allow for this to go on for two years? I think that we, in some ways, lost the ability to prioritize somehow or um, perhaps uh, lost our, our ability to create these power collectives that would challenge power. I'm not sure what it is. Perhaps someone needs to write a dissertation about it. <laughs> but it it certainly feels like there is a tension, as you say, because I have seen people arguing with one another about what sort of tactic to take when it I mean these tactics are so disparate. It's like you're you're like these 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 two different things are are attacking the system um, in two different ways. One is attacking the power of the system and trying to make sure that the system does not uh, continue to harm large swaths of people in a particular way. And as you say, doesn't have a lot of tangible results. You don't you don't see it in your hands. It doesn't look like uh, a GoFundMe page with a number and a bar that goes up. And one is, I'm going to support this person directly. Um, and I can see how I'm supporting this person directly. And that is not a bad thing. And, you know, we're not saying that uh, in any way, but it is a very different thing. And one, I don't think, I mean, uh, the, the, the mutual aid one cannot supplant the other. It absolutely cannot supplant the other. Um, and I, I do think that we should really interrogate where this line is of where mutual aid um, stops and where charity begins, because I do think that there, there's a, a distinct political difference there um, uh, that is about um, the dignity of people and is about the power of people and power relationships and whether or not we are uh, supporting the... Uh, existence of the power structure as it uh, currently um, as it currently acts upon us or whether we're challenging it. And I do think that in, whenever we're engaged in mutual aid um, uh, initiatives, we should be very careful to make sure that part of the way that we're engaging in that is considering the power relationships between those who are doing the giving and those who are um, being supported. Is it truly mutual? That's such an important point because if, if we're doing any kind of mutual aid, then the, then the people receiving aid also have to be giving aid. Like that, that's kind of a really basic principle. And if you are, are organizing in such a way that, that there isn't any opportunity for the people receiving aid to being involved in your movements for whatever reason, then that's, I think, a really big, uh, place to pause and to and to and to think about well wh why is that um 
you know, it's it's one thing to uh, stock up a community fridge. It's it's one thing to help people in your community out who need help, and that, that's all really good and important stuff. But you know, if we if we step back and we look at any one of our premiers, any premier in this fucking country, I mean, not even to mention Justin Trudeau, fuck. Any premier in this country has like which one of them, Sandy, has had any opposition, like fundamental opposition that they've actually had to be like they've actually been confronted by that has forced them to do anything different. Other, I can think of one <laughs> and and that's Jason Kenney and the oppositions from the right, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, yeah, there, there's been no uh, like at two years of this pandemic. There's no group uh, or coalition of groups or tendency or whatever fucking, you know, cluster of individuals working together uh, as a not individuals, as a collective that has challenged Doug Ford in any significant way. And I think that that's really interesting because um, it's, it, it's like, so w- what are activists all doing? And certainly there's some activists that are keeping people alive. And I'm, I'm, I'm not at all saying that um, the work that people are doing to keep other people alive, whether that's alive and, and, and healthy or alive and safe, avoiding poison drugs, like that's, that's all really, really important work. But when we boil it down to, okay, so we're helping, like outside of what I've just mentioned, initiatives that we would call mutual aid, are they building collective power? Uh, and maybe maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking of something that you're involved in and you actually can say, yes, we're building collective power. Well, that's great. And I think in those situations, we need to hear those stories because we need to, we need to understand what collective power looks like in that situation. Because what I worry about is that the left falls into a bit of a, a, a trap that was set, you know, in the 1970s, and 1980s, where left wing activists became service providers only. And they became service providers because they looked in society and said, well, there's no shelters uh, or the shelters that exist are not sufficient. They're not feminist. Um, they're not uh, anti-racist. We need to build them ourselves. There's no childcare, so We need to build it ourselves. And before you know it, abortion services, we have to do this all of ourselves. Before you know it, all of the frontline service provision are, is being done by the best activists. And the state sits back and says, ha ha, like f- f- you're trapped. You can't stop because so many people rely on you to provide those services that you have become uh, – you've lost the power. Like all of the power that you have is going into helping people and you're not able to then challenge the state to challenge these fundamental principles of of why this thing in the first place is happening. And childcare is a good example because, you know, then it takes like how many fucking decades to even get a conversation going to maybe get a program that we will see uh, what it looks like. But – when we put ourselves into that service provision role, we really do risk like staying in that service provision role. And it's a conundrum because it isn't as if those the, like service provision is bad, right? It isn't as if like the, like the shelter system is bad because the best and radical activists are there because we need them to be there. But, you know, this is this is the, the logic. Again, where neoliberalism seeps in and it's like, 
okay, so the state has failed you, and how are you organizing then in a way that is empowering the people that you are providing services to? And I know that the shelter movement is actually, again, a good example where in some situations um, there is a mutual back and forth between people who are receiving uh, services and people who are giving services, but that's not always the case. Yeah, I, you know, I had uh, some direct uh, experience with this sort of um, tension in that uh, when the pandemic was happening, uh, one of the first things that we did at uh, Black Lives Matter Canada was to create a mutual aid fund. And we provided microgrants across the country to black people who were in need. Um, uh, and they were rapid. They, they went out rapidly. And uh, people were really happy with that. People were uh, very supportive of that. We did a couple rounds of it um, and were able to support a lot of people. We also did a similar thing in partnership with FoodShare where we got uh, groceries very simply out to um, as many people as we could who, who needed them. And we also, during the pandemic, really ratcheted up our support for... Uh, providing resources to chapters across the country uh, for uh, getting a space that would allow activists a place to 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 come together and do um, the organizing work that they needed to do on the ground to build power uh, and so on. And we got uh, um, quite a bit of critique for that. And one of the critiques that we were hearing was instead of getting the space, you could have provided more money directly on the ground to people. And I mean, it's like, yeah, I mean, that is a choice that could have been made. But we are always thinking about how to uh, how to multiply power, how to make sure that the collective power that we're building expands and is more sustainable um, in more places than just Toronto, like across the country. And it seemed as we were having, we had some town halls, we had some lives, like that this is a real tension, that this is a question, like shouldn't, should mutual aid come first? Should mutual aid be prioritized? And I think that this is a very political question. And uh, to me, I just, it, it really does start to feel as though, you know, if I'm asking myself, how is this empowering people? How are we making the decision to make sure uh, that we are uh, passing down knowledge for collective power building or expanding our ability to uh, challenge the way that the system is built? the answer becomes uh, more obvious to me in terms of what sorts of initiatives we should support. And certainly um, our chapters across the, the country were, were pretty united on what they wanted to do, and that was to focus on building power. Um, but it was, you know, it is, it's a real tension uh, in, in, I think, activist community right now. And I think that the, the pandemic is a really big piece of that. No, ab absolutely it is. And, you know, I, I like to step back and look at this from the perspective of, the, of, of those people who are in power, who would be very happy to see us all working in soup kitchens all the time. They'd be, they'd be thrilled, right? The best organizers in Canada are making food for people because people are starving. And I, I think that one of the, the challenges of this moment is, you know, if you 
If you're not like 60 and you haven't seen movements in Canada be able to build like power beyond uh, the, the, a, a smallish group of people, understanding like how you build power from small groups of people outwards into actually changing things is, is, is a bit theoretical because, you know, in the last 30 years, that's not how we've been able to change anything. That power has been consolidated within government structures. We've been completely left down uh, by opposition parties um, and, and and not not as if like we should always have hope the NDP to save us. But, you know, in Canadian history, like opposition parties, even the conservatives have actually put forward good things, right? The conservatives were the party that put forward the first, you know, bill of rights in Canada, right? So we're in a completely different political era in the last three decades and especially the last two decades. And so it's really theoretical about how you go from today where you are to actually changing a politician's mind or actually changing uh, norms within a society, especially if you were in fucking high school three years ago. I mean, it's cool if you were in high school three years ago, but fuck, like, <laughs> you know, you're really young, right? You're you're really young if you're in your late 20s. You're still really young, you know, relatively if you're in your early 30s. Um, and, and if you're below the age of 45, you just don't have that direct experience with building huge amounts of collective power, probably, unless you're like very, very lucky to be involved in something um, like, you know, something like the Quebec student strikes. Where, again, it becomes theoretical. And so I think people then default to, well, what's the most realistic thing that we can do? People need help. People are hungry. We can feed them. We can do what we can uh, to take care of the people that we're connected to. And I always think of this line. I mean, this is going to be completely excruciating if you have no idea what I'm about to say or what I'm talking about. But there's this line in uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which is this this great musical that you should all watch, even if uh, you hate Jesus himself, that's fine. Um, it's not very religious if you watch it, the television version, right? The the movie made by uh, Norman Jewison. But there's this, at the beginning of the film, there's this tension between Jesus and Judas. Judas eventually betrays him. That's kind of like the story of how Jesus is crucified. And um, Mary Magdalene is putting oil on Jesus's head at the end of the day. And Judas, who's becoming more and more disillusioned with this movement, is like, what the, what the fuck are you doing, Mary? You're wasting money on these fine oils and you're just putting on Jesus's head. And Jesus is like, he literally says, there will always be poor, pathetically struggling, but look at what we've got going on around us. Look at what we've built. Like there's some good things that we've actually got going on here. Um, and then, of course, Judas responds more that people who are hungry and people who are starving matter more than your feet and your hair, right? Which is the line written by, uh, who is the lyricist on that? Tim Rice. I'm not quoting the Bible here, folks. This is fucking musical theater. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a tension, right? You got 20 bucks. Are you going to fucking uh, rent a room to have a meeting? Or are you going to give 20 bucks to someone you walk by on the street who needs the money? Mm -hmm. um, the thing is that we also often think of these things in a model of scarcity. And I don't think that we should be thinking mm -hmm. of it in those terms. Because there is always no, some. No, that's how power wants us to think about it. That is how power wants us to think about it. It always benefits them to think about things as though we're all competing with one another and competing for one project or the next. Well, exactly. And like there's always going to be people in society who have disposable income who can pay for someone's meal. Like that, we have a society where people have a lot of money and some of the people that have a lot of money actually are still happy to do charity. That is literally why charity exists. So, yeah, so we have to challenge ourselves to think beyond charity and to really 
interrogate uh, our, our mutual aid strategies to say, is this mutual aid building something? Is it empowering people or is it charity? And if it is charity, we really have to, I think, change our direction, change our strategies. I really didn't know where you were going with Jesus Christ Superstar, but that was a that was a great tie in. I appreciated that. You have to see. Oh, my God, Sandy, this scene. Oh, my God, this scene is so good. And I mean, oh, no, no, you all everybody has. It's it's the first it's in the first fucking seven minutes. So you don't have to watch very fucking much. And the music is so good. And Carl Lewis, who plays Judas, amazing, like just like the best voice. You will watch this whole thing, even if you only sat down to watch seven minutes of it. You know, I love musical theater and I haven't seen Jesus Christ Superstar since I was probably. And since I was probably in single digits so so i should probably watch it again so maybe that's what i'll do for the rest of this sunday night but i hope that that discussion was helpful and if you have a a challenge for us on this please you know challenge us on it i think that uh one of the best things about working uh with nora and about the way that we do this podcast and that the way that we um orient our politics is that we're willing to be skeptical of ourselves <laughs> and we should we should <laughs> all be skeptical of ourselves because the revolution isn't here yet um, and so I'm not sure that any single one of us is perfect or has the answers but we are very willing uh, to to sort of work through this and what we noticed during our spaces conversation was that there were so many people who wanted to work through this. Uh, it it came up and many, many people wanted to talk talk about it. And so we said, all right, let's talk about it um, at some point on the podcast. And here it is. And uh, let's make this a, a dialogue. Uh, so, you know, get back to us with what you think um, about this. And if you if you have a different thought, we'd love to hear it.